Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I teach them. You can even inspire about, about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love themselves. Greetings and welcome to a new season of the Pride Programs podcast, In My Skin, where we explore the intersection of race and early childhood. I'm your new host, Medina Jackson, the Director of Engagement for the Pride Program. First, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Flango, the former host and creator of the In My Skin podcast, who has created all of the content of prior seasons. If you haven't already listened to those dynamic, informative episodes, make sure that you do so. We thank you, our listeners, for your support thus, thus far. This season, we will be highlighting scholars and practitioners who are in active practice of implementing pride strategies because we want you to hear directly from those who are doing solution-oriented work and doing it well. In these episodes, our guests will be in conversation with me as they not only share their professional knowledge and passion, but their lived experiences that brought them to the work they do. Here at Pride, we know this work is just as much personal as professional and that our children's lives depend on it. We are here to disrupt the impact of racism through positive, holistic strategies that may inspire you to try something new in your classrooms, homes, and community spaces. This episode provides a special treat where I speak with two champions for Black children's education, identity, and justice, my colleague, the amazing Dr. Aisha White, director of the Pride Program, and her daughter, Jamila Rice, a voracious reader, writer, social justice-focused educator, and recipient of the 2009 Milken Family Foundation Teacher of the Year Award for the state of Pennsylvania. There were so many gems shared in this conversation that we didn't want you to miss that we had to make this a two-part episode. Now, tune in and get to know the learnings, lived experiences, and insights from this dynamic duo, Dr. Aisha White and Jamila Rice. Welcome to the In My Skin podcast. I am your new host, Medina Jackson. I'm a mom, spoken word artist and poet, creative space maker, community educator, and director of engagement of the PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. And I'm really excited to be here with my esteemed colleague, community-engaged scholar, practitioner, artist, educator, and director of the PRIDE program, Dr. Aisha White and social justice educator, artist, writer, and K-8 assistant to the superintendent for learning and teaching with Chester Community Charter School, Jamila Rice. Now, one thing you may not know about this dynamic duo is they are also mother and daughter. So I wanna welcome you to the show, ladies. So nice to have you. Thank you. Thanks, for, right. thanks for having us, Medina. This is great. Yeah, sure. this is great. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really excited. So we're going to jump right into some questions for you all. Um, so first, um, as Dr. White knows, when we work with folks in the PRIDE program, we like to integrate personal reflections about race into the mix. So, you know, we know as much as this work is professional, a large part of our motivation comes from our personal and lived experience with race and racism. So both of you have been engaged in race and justice work in a variety of ways for a long time, from within classrooms and schools to community-based activism. So can you share a lived experience that connects you to and informs your approach to the work that you do? 
So Dr. Wright White will go to you first. Yeah, I was going to hand it over to Jamila first. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get started, Jamila. <laughs> Come on with the tag team. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to think of, of, of something, you know, just off, off the top of my head, but in terms of a lived experience, it's, it was kind of, it was also a work experience. And that was, um, the work that I did at the Warhol with their without sanctuary exhibit. Um, and the without sanctuary exhibit was an exhibit on lynching photography in America. Um, and it was, um, originally a collection of postcards and photographs, um, by an antiques dealer. And um, when he found one of these postcards of a lynching in the drawer of uh, a piece of furniture that he had purchased, you know, he had two thoughts. One was that he could not believe that someone would actually take a photograph of a lynching. And then the second was that he could not believe that someone would mass produce it and turn it into an actual postcard. So, um, the work that I did with the Warhol involved um, leading discussions related to those visceral images and hearing um, lots and lots of stories, some of which were family stories that had never been discussed as a family until um, the family attended that exhibit. So um, the way that that informed, you know, my approach to this is that I learned even more deeply how important true discussion is in order to um, talk about ideas and be able to connect feelings and experiences to it. Thank you so much, Jamila. And can I tell you, I went to that exhibit and I didn't know, I don't think I knew Dr. White at the time. So mm -hmm. that's amazing that you were a part of that exhibit. I remember being there at the Warhol and everything, and it was very, um, uh arresting yeah um definitely definitely so to hear that your brilliant mind was a part of that just makes it even more just amazing and what's really funny not fu like funny right but what's really um funny about that is that I would not have even been in that position if it were not for um, my response to a new leader at the school where I was teaching at the time who exhibited a lot of language and behaviors that seemed um, biased to me. So it mm. was leaving that biased situation that led me into this opportunity to talk about race and state-sponsored terrorism and the perpetuation of these things in society. Wow. So it's, it's, it's really um, interesting how the personal and professional experience exactly. led to another personal and professional experience that really, I think, informed and engaged so many people about the horrors of lynching. So, mm -hmm. you know, kudos to you for that. Dr. White? Yeah, and I just want to piggyback off of the, what Jamila just um, shared. Sure. And the other part of the reason that she was part of that process was because I recommended her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Come through, mama. I always, I always forget. <laughs> yeah, so Malik Bankson was on an advisory group for the um, exhibit and the community engagement aspect of it. 
And he called me up and asked me for some recommended people, some educators. And I said, of course, Jamila. So that's how mm -hmm. part of the other reason Jamila was involved. Um, I thought about it, uh, um, lived experiences. And so a couple that stand out for me, but I'll just talk um, in more detail about one of them. One is my work um, in the 2000s with rights and responsibilities, the, <clears throat> the um, nonprofit organization that brought in films that help people to better understand the human rights issues impacting people of African descent. But the other, I believe, was my um, op the opportunity I had to go to Nairobi, Kenya in 1985 for um, uh, part of the United Nations Decade for Women. So back in the 70s and 80s, they used to each 10 years um, have a um, international conference of women. And I was lucky enough to be able to go. And the thing that I'll describe that I think the connects directly to um, uh, positive racial identity in particular was landing at in Nairobi and deplaning the plane and looking at the bottom of the steps and seeing all black people. So all of the people who worked at the airport were black. And I mean, it was, I wouldn't say it was shocking, but it was so impactful. And you know, I left that experience saying, oh my God, this is what we are missing as African-Americans of people of, as Afri of African descent in the United States. And I think that really, I mean, I already was thinking about black people doing work, being active around it, but I think that really impacted me in a very different kind of way. Thank you, Dr. White. It's so interesting you mentioned that moment because I have not yet been to the continent. Um, but I always imagine that moment of what I will feel like when I'm stepping off of the plane. So that's, you know, an interesting connection. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to talk a little bit about the pride program for a moment. Um, as you know, our listeners know the the in my skin podcast is a project um, out of the pride program. Um, and I'm not sure, though, that people really know the origin um, and backstory behind how this program can, came to be. It's been an official program since 2017, but we've been thinking about positive racial identity since 2015. So, uh, Dr. White, can you share how the PRIDE program came to be and why this work around race, early childhood, and positive racial identity is so important? important. Yeah, so um, I know that you wanted the abbreviated version, which is really hard for me to do. <laughs> uh, but I have to give start off by giving kudos to two people, Rich Milner, who used to be the head of the Center for Urban Education at the University of Pittsburgh School of Education, and Carol Barone Martin. And the reason is, Carol Barone Martin, back in 2015, had begun to do some work with some of her early educators around race and racial awareness. Her group of, her small group of teachers, um, they were reading articles, and one of the articles they happened to read was written by Rich Milner, and it was all about his struggle to find quality, diverse childcare for his twin daughters. Carol sent the um, article to uh, the person who at that time was my supervisor. She shared the article with, at the time, it was um, our Ready Freddy team. 
the program that Medina and I coordinated prior to our pride work. And in her email, she alluded to the fact that there must be some way we can be part of a solution to some of the problems that um, Dr. Milner had raised in the article. <clears throat> and I um, had one of those moments where I started to just uh, give her a knee-jerk response and say, yeah, we could do X, Y, Z. And then I um, instead did some deep thinking and said, I am not going to do that. I am going to tell her what I really think. And that is that there's no way we can be part of the solution as a team when we never, ever, not once talked about race as a team. Uh, but I added to that that I'm happy to find articles about race and early education, share them with the team, and then have us discuss them, those articles, um, at our biweekly meetings. And that's what we did for about six months. The more we read, the more we realized there was a need for programming to address issues of race and to support children in developing a positive racial identity. Uh, one thing led to another, we then got funding to do an environmental scan. The environmental scan report ended up being positive racial identity development and early education, understanding pride in Pittsburgh. And from there, we were able to get funding to start our program. So it all started from one single email. <clears throat> and the reason that um, this work is so important is one, because young children are seeing race, they are seeing uh, racial differences, and in societies like the United States, and I would also say other places, European countries, for example, that are multicultural countries, people of African descent typically are at the bottom of the economic uh, rung, and they also experience a discrimination that does not um, protect children. And so children need special things to help them to survive and be healthy and thrive in uh, highly racialized societies. And I always love how you um, emphasize with us as a team that children having a positive racial identity is a part of their healthy and whole child development. And it's important. Our focus and emphasis is on Black children, but it's important for all children to have this, right? Right. Um, Jamila, uh, question for you. Yes. Keeping the current racist, anti-critical race theory sentiment <laughs> in mind mm -hmm. in your extensive experience of being a classroom teacher, curriculum developer, and administrator working with other educators, why is race and social justice important to integrate into educational settings? And what is your approach to doing that? And how do you encourage other educators to do so? And this is for Jamila, but Aisha, feel free to chime in because I know you have things to say about this too. Okay, so um, the, my initial response to your first question as to like, why is it important? Um, to integrate is because it's already there. <laughs> I think that the biggest fallacy is that um, it's not present when we know we live in America, we live in a, a, a racialized world. So to, to um, be delusional about race not being present and, and social justice or the lack thereof not being present in a school or in a classroom is, is really um, misguided thinking. Um, and not realistic. So the 
what the reason why I would approach it is because it is there and because it is yet another um, topic that leads to skills that uh, students need to have as um, citizens of the world to be able to navigate effectively throughout the world. Um, so one thing that comes into mind um, initially about this is, you know, um, the school where I taught for a number of years was primarily African-American school. And we had some graduates come back um, from their first uh, quarter of college and they were just really upset about the interactions that they had been experiencing with their white counterparts um, in undergrad. And, you know, I had students reach out to me to ask me questions about like how to respond to some things, which who should they go to talk to about some of the um, interactions and the um, aggressions and microaggressions that they were experiencing. But they knew to reach out to me after they had graduated because of the things that we read about and discussed when we were in class uh, together and how I was very um, adamant about folding all of those things into um, the learning that they did. So we didn't learn things in a vacuum. Um, so one, that's one thing because it creates that connection. It gives them a space to call out things that they see and feel, put a name to it so that they'll be able to deal with it in a proactive and effective way that is not going to cause them any further harm. Um, so they need to know that there are safe people to talk to about that, that are informed and will know how, um, be able to help guide them as to how to um, respond to these things, but also to be proactive with creating a safe spaces where they might be, um, in order to be able to have these discussions and be their own advocates. Um, so I would say that's one reason why it's also adding that. I mean, not to sound hokey, but adding that relevance to the things that they are um, engaging in. If you're asking students to do really tough, rigorous things, there has to be some type of a buy-in with it. There has to be a point to it. And if there's no point to it or buy-in or personal connection with it, then you only are going to see students who are good at playing the school game be engaged with whatever that particular um, learning experience is. So, you know, it's a way of empowering them. It's in the same way that I feel that I was empowered by growing up in a household that was rich with, um, you know, the brilliance of Black people and people of African descent across the globe. And not just across the globe during the present, but past and thinking toward the future too. You know, so it was the experience that I had to, to help me to, you know, really be so well grounded as um, a young person in a very racialized city of Pittsburgh, and also as a young person in um, in a public school system that may not necessarily have seen me um, as being as uh, brilliant as I was as a young person. You know, I knew how smart I was. I didn't depend on a teacher ever <laughs> to tell me whether I was smart or not, whether I had any particular skills or not because of the way that I had been raised and what had been poured into me 
um, for too many years for them to be able to destroy it. And that's what happens. I'm using the words that are accurate. It's destroyed um, when so many of our brilliant young people go into school and it gets chipped away year after year after year. And then we wonder why they don't want to come to school and why they don't want to engage in any of those other things. And I know I'm going on, but I'm so passionate about this and adamant about how important it is. Yeah, I love how you mentioned, um, I think, uh, what Dr. Bettina Love, I think she called it soul killing, something like Hmm. that um, in her book. Um, And I also love how you mentioned, which is what Uh, how we strive to approach our work with pride, that we try to encourage people to be able to respond as well as be proactive and then make it personal or find that uh, personal connection. It seems like you had a dynamic relationship with your students, which allowed them to come to you with those kinds of concerns and that you were a wonderful resource for them. Dr. White, did you have anything you wanted to add to what Jamila said? I think Jamila covered it all. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I know you have things about the anti-CRT uh, sentiment. Did you want to say anything more about that? Um, I think I, the only thing that I would say is probably things that people already know, which is that this um, current, um, I guess you could say current version of it is just a replication of something that has a long history going back as far as the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So it comes in fits and spurts and waves. And when we see people becoming a lot more aware, conscious, active, then there's always people who are reactive and want to take us a step um, back. And so I think this is just another example of that. That's right. That's right. There's yeah. that quote, um, whenever there's racial uh progress there's also it's followed by racial terror and what you just mentioned dr white makes me think of the daughters of the confederacy everybody should look that up mm-hmm. like dr white mentioned this has been going on for a long time this is nothing new were you going to say something jamila no yeah it just reminds me of um you know was it uh Laz, my teacher told me by james lowen and how he uh, talked about that backlash after reconstruction yes. and, and, and what that was, you know, how that was just like the, the death of so many things that had been accomplished, but it was that reaction. Right. Right. Yeah. If anyone wants to know um, a wonderful resource, if you have, I believe it's on PBS. Um, there's a PBS documentary. I think it's two or three parts on reconstruction, which talks about mm-hmm. the terror and the backlash that followed reconstruction. Like Jamila just mentioned. And there's also a um, young adult novel, um, not novel, but a young adult version of the, the book that has been written by Henry Louis Gates. So he has both the, there's an adult version of the book and there is also a young adult version. Oh, what's the name of the book? Oh, you know, I have it on a bookshelf. So okay, it's okay. <laughs> I'll look at, I'll look it up while someone else is talking and I'll, I'll say it. Okay. Okay. Well, um, as you know, towards the end of what you were saying, uh, Jamila, about um, how you were raised, you know, as I mentioned earlier, these uh, Dr. Wright and Jamila, you're both uh, a dynamic mother-daughter duo. 
And uh, one of the PRIDE program's components is work with parents and caregivers. And to my understanding, as Jamila just mentioned, Dr. White, as a parent, created a home environment and had a parenting style that was what we like to call PRIDE-filled. So can you both talk about what that experience was like, um, if, if there are any memories that you can share, um, and some of the benefits of that? So I'll start with Dr. White. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to try to put it on Jamila again. Again, <laughs> Jamila's again. looking up a book. <laughs> well, I guess I, I guess I'll start by saying that um, first of all, I was a young uh, single parent, and single parent, you know, primarily throughout my parenting <clears throat> um, experience. So I think people need to understand that. And I think uh, the reason that I say that is because it was the reality, but also it's um, an example of how you still can do it even when you are a single parent, even though it may be a lot harder to do it. And I um, often talk about how fortunate I was to encounter um, a group of Black radicals who were from Pittsburgh and other parts of the country who get sort of just um, immerse me in this education around um, Black people, Black empowerment, Black pride. And so that had a huge influence on me. But I also would add that I think I was ripe for that because some of that was beginning when I was um, about to graduate from high school. And so with those, um, you know, with that mindset of being open to, to learning more and wanting to learn more and then having the opportunity to learn, it impacted my parenting. And so I had a really strong interest in helping my kids with things like reading. We always went to the library, single parent, no money, can go to the library. And Jamila will tell you how many times we went to the library. Um, so uh, one example of that is, um, you know, helping children to understand the importance of education, which is part of positive parenting, particularly for Black children. The other was having a home um, I guess you could say environment that celebrated Blackness. I can still remember this huge mural I made out of pictures from um, Ebony Magazine, um, Essence Magazine, and how it went all the way across the wall. And it was pictures of Black people from all parts of the world. Um, and then also just um, being involved in activism, that meant that my kids always saw me in the living room having meetings with people to talk about organizing, um, being involved in organizations and going to protests and taking my kids to protests. Not always the safest thing to do, particularly once when we were arrested yes. at an anti-apartheid demonstration. But, you know, a variety of things. So edu educating ch my children, Letting them see images that were positive, letting them see Black people who were intellectuals and who talked about important political issues, and then seeing me in action actually, you know, advocating for things that people needed and desired and deserved. I don't know if Jamila wants to add anything. There's so much to add. <laughs> There really is. Like, I'm glad that you mentioned the the um, the meetings. Yeah, because we were always so used to, 
either hosting meetings at the house or going to meetings at someone else's house or at a church or at some room at, at pit or wherever it might be. So we were always used to that, always used to protests, um, always used to, but then also it was that balance between that level of the activism, but then also an appreciation of the culture and art and music and things like that. So the artwork in the house always represented um, black the black diaspora, right? Um, and you know, taking us to African Liberation Day in DC in that <laughs> car. What? Car? Oh my goodness! Did that car like die on the way? Yes. 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 <laughs> Right? Who does that? Who takes like two little kids in a like janky car to DC for African Liberation Day? This lady, right? And it was such a great experience. I don't even remember the car uh, conking out. I remember because she told us the story afterwards. What I remember most is like how many Black people were at that. Uh, where was it? Was that at the National Mall or at a park? I'm not sure exactly where it was. It was so beautiful and um, I never forgot it. I always wanted to go back, you know, so that we could experience it again. So because we did those things, we're so used to doing those things. So then as we became, um, you know, young adults, we sought those things out ourselves. So whenever I would travel looking for um, these types of experiences and art exhibits and, you know, music festivals and things like that to deepen my understanding of uh, Black culture through the ages and across the globe. But um, I think that the other thing that I wanted to point out, because this is a thing maybe you might not even I don't know, because I don't want to say you don't talk about it that much, mom, you don't realize what you did. But not only it wasn't just like the steeping in the culture, but it was learning all the time, no matter what it was, it, she always asked questions, you know, of us and engaged us with whatever we were experiencing. So it wasn't as if we were being talked at, you know, or preached Two, it was always an open dialogue or an interchange where she really wanted to know what we were thinking. And part of that is because you were reading those books on child psychology too and trying to like really mimic those things to, to, to um, you know, be a great mom, even though you were so young, you know, but it, it worked because it, it, it definitely shaped our perspective, even of how to interact with young people, mm -hmm. you know, so you see it in the way that I might interact with students. Um, and then you see it in the way that, you know, my brother interacts with his children. You know, it's not really so directive, directive, but really just trying to get to know them as individuals and, and, and learning who they are so you can match the right experiences um, to them and help um, grow them. Uh, <laughs> those were just some beautiful jewels that y'all just dropped. I feel like that's going to be my favorite part of the show. Um, and I really, it was just so important to have that conversation, especially for some of our listeners who are parents 
and caregivers just knowing that planting those seeds early, you don't always know how and when they're mm-hmm. going to bloom, but they're going to bloom. They can bloom. So, and I, I just love also how um, Dr. White, you just created this immersive experience where it was pride filled in the home. It was pride filled in community spaces, pride filled, you know, educationally. So, you know, kind of everywhere that you went, you know, you try to have that essence of, of pride and instilling a sense of positive racial identity and Black brilliance and knowledge and appreciation of history and culture um, into your into your children in a way that wasn't, um, I think you you would say, is wasn't didactic. I was thinking didactic. Yes, I got that word from Dr. White mm-hmm. <laughs> and how it just stimulates thinking and conversation and um, nurturing their inquisitive nature. So that was just Beautiful, beautiful. Did you want to add something, Aisha? Well, the only thing I wanted to add was that, um, you know, this was something that didn't only happen when my kids were younger. So in the 19, late 1980s and 1990s, when I was involved with the Harambe Black Arts Festival, both of my kids were employed by the art Mm -hmm. festival. And so those experiences extended into their teenage years. Um, so, um, earlier in the conversation with, um, when Dr. White, uh, talked about the origin of pride and how it all started with an article. Um, so you're both practitioners, educators, and scholars who value research. So if you could name one useful or foundational research article and, or a resource, a resource that informs the work you do, what would it be? Yeah, so I first interpreted this question as an art, uh, as a question about resources that might be useful to others who are listeners. And um, I actually came up with three different, four different ones, uh, mm-hmm. four different genres. The first is an article, it's um, not an study, but it's a collection of research and it's our go-to article that we always recommend to people who are um, first encountering pride and that's Children Are Not Colorblind by Dr. Aaron Winkler. So it's an article. And then, I knew that one was gonna be in there. <laughs> right, and then a video that I recommend is um, the TED Talk by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum um, where she's talking about her son questioning her about being brown skin and my is my skin brown because I drink chocolate milk and then a um a book for practitioners that uh full disclosure I've read the beginning but I haven't finished reading it it's called don't look away embracing anti-bias classrooms and that's a fairly new book by Yoma Aruka Stephanie Currington Tanya Durden and Carrie Ann Sky. Um, and then the last recommendation is a film, and that is the film that's also about anti-bias uh, uh, curriculum. It's called Reflecting on Anti-Bias Education in Action, the Early Years. So I would recommend all four of those resources. Thank you, Dr. White. Jamila? Yeah, so... Um, I don't have the different articles teed up, but um, when I was thinking about this question, what it 
made me think about is what were some of the beginning texts that really helped to inform my whole approach to the way that I design learning experiences that are pride filled for the different students who might be within um, my classes. And so the first book um, was, of course, by the, the late Bell Hooks, and that's Teaching to Transgress. And I do believe that that book was introduced to me first by Dr. White, um, but I have it and it's still my go-to in order to remember the why behind um, what I'm doing. And um, the other book is a fairly recent one that I have just been like singing the praises of because it really speaks to the way that I did um, approach of designing teaching and learning um, when I was in the classroom. And that is um, like culturally re relevant teaching in the brain. Mm -hmm. Or is it it's culturally responsive teaching in the brain, right? I always end up- um, Those two R's are tricky. And then words. Look, That's I like have the Zanetta book. Hammond. Yep, yeah. culture. I, I made sure to have the books with me so that I wouldn't forget the titles. But yeah, um, culture responsive teaching in the brain, and just the whole introduction where she talks about how you know students are or might not be able to do certain things or um, even uh, think critically because that's what we taught them. Mm -hmm. You know that it's not something that's inherent in our students and. I always knew that it wasn't something that was inherent in our students because of the way that I was raised. However, not everybody has that experience. And so if they fixed their minds to think, oh, they're that way because they're Black, mm -hmm. then they're going to have uh, less lower expectations of what you know, students know or are able to know or can do or are able to learn how to do. You know, belief is such an important part of being able to be a dynamic teacher. You have to believe in students before anybody in their entire lives believes in them, you know, because that's the only way that it can happen. You know, and if you don't believe, then you're not going to attempt. So I would say those two books in particular. And then there's another book that I had to look up. Um, and, and it's probably, it's like a dark horse. Like you would not think it's this book that really helped to inform it. And um, the title of this book is Teaching English So It Matters. And it is by Deborah Stern. And it, I think it was published like in the early 90s yeah 1994 so yes I'm dating myself in the teaching career but I came across this book by chance um, at one of the university libraries um, when I was doing additional studies and I um, just completely fell in love with it because it was written by a woman who I believe taught in Chicago public schools and she um, just talked about how important it was to um, not just have thematic units that related to students' lived experiences, but also um, co-creating 
learning experiences. And so I was introduced to the whole concept of co-creating just by coming across a book. And it changed my whole trajectory of teaching because ever since I found that, I did not ever teach the same exact thing any successive years, no matter how many times I taught 11th grade or 12th grade or six through eight, like never never did the exact same scope and sequence. It was always maybe a couple of things that we would read together, but we never did the same exact activities with those things too, because I customized according to the students who were in front of me, mm-hmm. and constantly listening to them to see what are some of the things that they like, what are some of the things they don't like. Listen to, to them when they might say something that might be ill-informed in, in terms of race or a class, you know, and then making sure to tie something in to the learning experience that made them think differently about something that they thought they knew, Mm -hmm. you know? So for example, um, one year, one of the go-to books that we read all the time with 11th grade was Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. And there is a chapter in that novel that alludes to um, the Emmett Till, murder. Mm-hmm. And it's a barbershop conversation, you know, and so you have to kind of read between the lines, which is like how barbershop conversations are if you're not a part of it. And um so we read that chapter, but then also there I folded in a mini unit that related to the backstory of Emmett Till. You know, and so getting them to learn about it by looking at that clip from Eyes on the Prize mm-hmm. and then reading um, articles about um, race and sex and where these thoughts were coming from or where these philosophy about that drove these these men to kill this young boy came mm-hmm. from, you know, and, and being able to discuss it. And it, they and using tools to get them to really engage with text and then make connections to it. And so those were all of the the rich experiences that uh, we were able to have um, by making all of those um, connections and giving them alternate texts to look at depending on questions that they might ask while we're reading. Mm. So I was just constantly responsive, but I got that methodology from this book that I found in my very first year of teaching. Wow. I love how you um, talked about your approach in regards to the content, integrating um, kind of current events or historical events that connected to uh, the, the young people that you were teaching. And I love how you mentioned a little while back, um, believing in your students. Um, I remember having a teacher at Berkeley High who I will always remember. He's my favorite number one educator in our Africana Studies department in a Black psychology class, Mr. Davis. And he, I was a quiet student, but I did well in the class, but I didn't have that belief in myself. And he saw something in me that I didn't yet see in myself. 
right? And so mm-hmm. he pushed me, he encouraged me, he had high expectations. That's something that's, you know, recommended with uh, educators as well, have high expectations of your students, more than I thought that I could accomplish. And those seeds really planted in me kind of who I am today and some of the work that I'm doing today based on that educator believing in me and having high expectations of me and creating an environment where I was able to learn about myself, learn about my people and exert and develop my skills. So I can totally connect to what you're saying. This concludes part one of our two-part episode featuring Dr. Aisha White and Jamila Rice. Tune in to the next episode for more insights and best practices from them that you don't want to miss. I'm your host, Medina Jackson.